0: Hi, this is Craig Goldie. You know me best for Dio and Dio Disciples, and now Dream Child. And you're listening to Focus on Metal.
1: Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another episode of that, which we like to call Focus on Metal. So I don't say it enough, but I'm going to say it right now. Thank you very much for continuing to listen to us for the past, uh, what, about 12 years now, as uh, this one marks episode 576 for us. If uh, if you're new or you're just kind of catching up, uh, last week... Had another great uh, segment of our Iron Maiden going through the catalog, three albums at a time deal. So go back and check that one out. But this week, keeping in the vein of October, and it's a very loose vein, is the scary tale of David Glenn Isley and the band that came after Jeffreya. Dirty White Boy. Yes, it's a scary tale of the whims and fancies of the music business. A little real-life horror story for you for October. Hell, I'll even be slightly trendy here and say that it's for Rocktober. So if you're not familiar, let me give you just a quick gist of the whole situation And that is that a lot of you people probably know David Glenn Isley as the voice of Jafria. It's probably one of the things he's best known for. But uh, after that band, um, I'll call it quote unquote dissolved. And he talks a little bit about what actually happened in this week's episode. Um, He went on and uh, he ended up joining a band with Earl Slick called Dirty White Boy. And that uh, first album from them, Bad Reputation, is uh, I guess the best way to say it is it died on the vine while they were touring in Europe. So the main reason that Richie reached out to David was to talk about Dirty White Boy and Bad Reputation and all the crap that went on, the good stuff and a lot of the bad stuff with that album. Get a little bit of Jafria past history, some of the segue between those bands, what David's done since. Just, you know, kind of all that usual good stuff. And this is a long interview, folks. We're talking about 90 minutes of good stuff with David. Very candid. And he's got lots of stories. Talks about touring with Foreigner. Talks about all the crap that happened with them. Touring just for a short period of time with Deep Purple. If you want to hear a great impression of John Klaudner, listen to this episode David does a great one. And I sorely wish that you could have heard some of the -the off-the-record stories that David told as well. But, uh, you know, we're not one of those shows that goes with clickbait and all that good stuff. So for things where David said, hey, this is for your uh, ears only, or this one is uh, just keep this one out of print. We heeded all of those wishes and anything that he decided that uh, he didn't want us to air or right from the get-go when he was talking about it, he was like, yeah, not for air. Chop that out. I only wish you guys could have heard some of that great stuff. But uh, again, we got to respect the artists we have on the show. And, uh, you know, David is certainly worthy of our respect. And, David, if you're listening, I just got to say from me to you, the mural story, freaking priceless. So if you don't mind digging into the bowels of rock and roll history and kind of, you know, tearing up those dirty rocks and seeing what's crawling underneath it then I urge you to listen to this week's show because uh, David does some no-holds-barred. Again, great stories, great recollections, cautionary tale about things that can happen with record companies, although nowadays, what record companies are really frickin' left? But anyways, with all that, as I said before, this one is going to be a long one. Thanks for listening, and I'm going to turn it over to vocalist extraordinaire David Glenn Isley. Hello.
0: Hello, Rich. How are you?
2: Hey, David. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay, man. It's been a crazy week, and I just had an AC guy out here. It's been okay. hotter than hell again. Welcome to LA, LA. So yeah,
2: yeah. So I'm um, yeah. I'm just outside of Boston.
0: Ah, okay. That's, that's How's your weather out there? Get cooling down and stuff?
2: Yeah, it's about. Uh, I think today it's about fifty-five.
0: Oh, you lucky bastard (laughs) (laughs) You lucky bastard
2: Yeah, but I'm I'm originally from further across I'm I'm, I'm from Ireland Oh,
0: Oh, no, I can tell I can tell you I was just going to say You sound Irish
2: Yeah, I am I'm I'm actually going home uh, in a week and a half I haven't been home in five years
0: Oh, that'll be good, man We have some good friends in Ireland and In Dublin And then all of our in-laws And my Daughter's cousins and all that are all in London, so it's English, Irish, and I'm I'm from Irish descent too. So nice. Irish, Swiss descent. Okay, so,
2: nice. I've never interviewed you before. A,
0: a, a drunk guy on a, hmm? a drunk guy on a on a, on a mountainside. <laughs> <laughs> so go figure it out. Yeah. So, you
2: know? so I've never interviewed you before. I've interviewed people you've worked with. And, and I have yeah, interviewed yeah. Bo Hill, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, do, <laughs> yeah, do you do you get asked Do you get asked a lot about the Dirty White Boy record?
0: No, I really don't, and the reason being, cut and drive. And you've probably heard it before from the other guys. Um, when we when we signed that deal, we signed a pretty lucrative deal, and it, well, I call it the Dick Asher. Regime of PolyGram, which was at the time it was Bon Jovi, it was Def Leppard, it was uh, Tears for Fears, it was you know it was like it was like you know all these you know they were major at, at, at that point at that point, and it was so it was Dicks so as soon as we signed within six months of signing I mean we were in the studio got the got the record done. And they, for some unforeseen reason, they sent us to Europe first. They sent us immediately out onto the road, and we went straight to um, to London. We played the marquee, and then we played the big ones, Birmingham, Wembley, all, you know, we, we, were, we were just out and about. And then we took the ferry and went over to Europe and, you know, banged out every freaking city in Europe, and... Um, we ended up in Stockholm. And uh, I remember distinctly, I remember the promoter. I can't do a Swedish accent. But uh, he just came backstage. They, A couple of them came backstage while we were changing. We were done. And he says, oh man, might as well not even go home. There's no record company. And we said, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and there was like, we had like, full page ads on the back of like, circus in you know, all the magazines it was like full page ads of the band and all that you know in america the, the coming out the band coming out the, the release coming out in march of 1990 i guess or it would have been 90 or 91 and um <laughs> and he, he was dead right we came home and uh Billy Eckstein, you know the jazz musician. You know, mm-hmm. I was real, real good friends with his daughter and stuff like that. Uh, Cece. and uh, we came home, and there was no, there, there was literally no record, rock and roll department at all. If we had to go talk to somebody, we talked to, to Billy or somebody up in the R and B section, you know, department. And it was like, what's going on? So they they shipped. I know it was like an obligatory by contract. Um, maybe they shipped like 75, maybe 10,000 at the top. They shipped that many records out throughout the whole United States. And there was no press other than the pre-press, you know, cause you always do it like a couple months in advance. Mm-hmm. And we were coming, we were coming home at, you know, like right after Thanksgiving, early December uh, into the new year so that's when those magazines all hit the rack and, the, and there was no record wow. it was, <laughs> oh yeah it was, it was, it was ridiculous
2: hmm. I, I want to go a little bit back before the Dirty White Boy band formed and you said in interviews when you did that record that you almost signed a solo album deal but things didn't work out uh, can you remember why they
0: didn't work out? Well, I was still, it was like, or, or, you know, um, to just, not dispute, but to just disagree with Gene and all of that House of Lords nonsense, which was literal press nonsense, that I think Gene, you know, that, that was his explanation. Because we had already gone in and demoed a bunch of stuff that Greg and I had written. And, you know, and Lanny at the time. You know, because basically House of Lords was basically the third rear record with another singer. And I have nothing against James, James could sing,er You know, but um, what happened was, is Greg and I had a meeting at Camel, which was Camel MCA, which we shared the label. It was only us and Night Ranger. We, had a, we literally had a meeting with Bruce Bird. Who was the president? God rest his soul. But uh, and we just looked at each other. We just uh, we'd already demoed all this stuff, you know, and uh, which a third of the House of Lords record, a little over a third of it, is my stuff on that record. We had already demoed it, and then some, there was a hitch with Cannell and MCA, I believe, and what happened was the solo record. Was conceivably going to come out with Bruce being being Bruce Bird and Camel, and uh, subsequently Camel went under. They were done. They were basically done, or at least. And Greg and I looked at each other. I'll never forget it. we were sitting at his Bruce's desk, and we just said, "You know, I guess we've you know we've really come to the end of the rope with us." We're sort of done, you know. And in the meantime, I think probably Greg was already courting, or Gene was already courting Greg, and Greg was already courting Gene, and we'll put this thing together, and it'll be like blah, 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 you know, this, that, and the other. And at the same time, ironically enough, at the same time, I went down to some underground, you know, like punk record listening party. I was on my motorcycle. I was on my parley. And Kenny Richards was there, and and he spotted me, and he knew who I was. And he says, hey, man, you know, Kenny was crazy. God rest his soul. And he was going, you know, he's chomping on the filter over Marlboro. And he's saying, listen, listen, man, I'm putting this band together with Slick. You know, Earl Slick? And I go, I know Earl Slick. I worked with him back in 1980. And uh, he goes, well, I'll put this thing together. Why don't you go over to the studio tonight? Now, this is all all at the same time house of Lords is being constructed i'm on my bike i see kenny i go down to the studio and there's a bunch of guys auditioning in there as a singer for that for what became dirty boy and i was i just sat there quietly i just went into the office and then i came out and they gave me a few tracks and i sat down i jotted out some ideas real quick and i sang and slick said that's it Kenny said, "That's it, we're, we're done. You want to join?" And I said, "Yeah, because I love, Slick. I love him, you know." And Kenny was, was the character of all characters. They should have built a care a cartoon around him. Huh. So that was that. So when everybody, you know, when there's this thing like, "Yeah, well, we had to fire of the singer," and uh, <laughs> and what you did is you virtually put. <laughs> the next just read a record out and and change the face. You know, it was like, it was insanity. But, um, you know, and, and subsequently in the last, you know, over the years, Greg has called me on several occasions. China, you know, and he's a very successful businessman, as you know. Yeah, you know, he has been for a long time now. So he doesn't need the money, and he doesn't need to do this non deal stuff. And he's just said, "Man, I'm so sorry things went down the way they did, and I should have never done it, and we should have had, the, you know, the, the next Jeffrey record, we could have gotten a label anywhere, and uh, we should have just done it." And Gene just twisted my arm and just talked me into it. You know, and he, they had a history from kissing an Angel, and, you know, Greg just went for it. And that's fine. I don't fault him for it. I say, it's okay. I don't, I don't, it's all right. Listen, I landed on my feet. I was in, I was in one of probably I had more fun playing in Dirty White Boy than I did <laughs> in Jafria, really, because there was a lot of intertension in Jafria. In Dirty White Boy, there was nothing. But just like, let's just go rock. You know, mm. let's just go. You know, I mean, I've unfortunately, Kenny's got the majority of them probably in his grave with him. But the roadies used to, on cassettes back then, used to tape all the shows. And that record is, take ING out. That record was a wreck compared to what we really sounded like on, you know, live. We were. It was like a freight train from hell. We were hearing these cassettes over at Kenny's house, and just going, "That's not us. This is not a cassette recorder." You know, I've got. I've got about six or seven of them. You know, from Berlin, from you know, um, Offenbach, from you know, wherever. They're all primarily from Germany, mm. but they were just like, well, "Who the fuck is that?" <laughs> that's not. That's not us. That's not us, <laughs> and. And I don't want to go on, I'll let you ask another question, but I have an interesting story about the the beginning of that whole putting of that record and writing of those songs together. And uh, it's something that nobody knows. I mean, you know, some people might, but most people don't know. I used to play ball, softball. Well, I still do. Um, not as much, but we had rock and roll. Teams and stuff, and all you know, this and that, and not necessarily just musicians, but they were hardcore games. I mean, we went out for blood. You know, we played hard, and some guys, most, the only guys that could play were guys that knew how to play the game, and Neil Geraldo was one of them. And Neil was a big fan of Slicks, and Slick was who's not a big fan of anybody's. Slick was a big fan of Neil's. And I'll never forget going driving down Slicky and I driving down the Malibu and meeting and Neil, Slick and I met at a Starbucks down there near you know right past Pepperdine and uh, Neil came out to the rehearsals, and Slick was just like a kid in a candy store. He was going, "Oh my God, I man he can play he can play guitar on it. We'll have him co-produce it with us he's He's the guy, He is the guy we want, and I'm going no shit. I mean, I love this cat. He, he fits right into what we, what we want to do, you know. He's a different player than Slick, but he's the same deal. He's the real thing. You know, it's not Flash and, you know, a gazillion notes a minute and mm-hmm. all that kind of crap. You know, and anyway, so we were, we were hell bent that that was it. Neil was going to co-produce, and at the time Danny Goldberg was managing us. Danny, who ended up being the president of Atlantic, and then he went on to, I think he's retired, I don't know. But anyway, Bo, coming from you know, Winger and Warrant, and you know, God bless them, they're great, they also they showed good records and, you know, and stuff like that, but we, I mean, between you and me and the Lampus, we hated their records. could just they were not our taste. Right down the line, all four of us, it was like, no, 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 it's it's, it's, it's like sugar pop rock, you know, that's not what we're all about. It's fine, you know, and it's, a lot of people like it, but we don't want to, sure as hell don't want to sound like that. You know, well, Bo had his way of doing it. He'd come off like, you know, platinum records and all this kind of stuff, and he wine and dined Polygram and Danny Goldberg. It must have cost him a hundred grand in lunches he says i need a band he literally said i need a band like this to show that i have another that i can turn the corner that i can you know this i can play you know i can i have a blue sense i have this and the other blah 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 well so they overruled neil so neil was out of the picture and we were pretty disappointed and we just said, well, okay, well, we'll go to the studio and hope for the best. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times I had to literally bring Slick back and he'd walk up. <laughs> he'd walk up. The methods that Bo was using were so, not alien to Slick, but they were so against his grade. It was like, just leave me the fuck alone and let me play, you know. Don't do this. Don't be analytical. Put your telescope and microscope away, and just, just blow off. Just go away. And I'd have to literally go out in the street, pull him out of his jeep, and say, "Dude, come on, man. Let's just try to get through the day." And that's how that whole record came to get. And then the end mixes were just so bad that we had to take him to Woodstock with Thompson Barriero, who Slick knew. From dancing in the streets with Bowie and Jagger, and they tried to take, <laughs> they tried to take the multi tracks and try to make hedge tails of, of them and try to make some kind of change. So it, it you know, to to pull it more into our, where we wanted it to be, which is near impossible. Because the performances are already there, or the way it went down on tape is already there. And I remember Kenny yelling and screaming, I can't hear my fucking hi hat. Turn my fucking hi hat up. Jesus Christ, it's a rock and roll band. You know, and if you listen to the Winger Warrant Records, you can't even hear a hi hat. Mm. You can barely hear a cymbal. Once in a while, you'll hear a cymbal crash. You know, I'm talking about the early stuff, and that's fine. It's radio friendly. I don't care, you know. But we did. We cared. So I mean, it was a it was a it was a bitch. It was really a a, a drag. Mm. So the long and short of it is, we it was bad timing. So by the time we got back home, uh, there literally was no big, you know, rock and roll. That the Polygram was the place to be period, end of story Dick Asher, we got signed on a phone call and I can't remember I'm trying to remember his name but he came He came down to one rehearsal and he called Dick up and he said, sign these guys and we looked at each other and we went, wait, what do you mean? Danny came down and he says, okay, you're on Polygram and we said, what do you mean? We haven't even auditioned for anybody but America. I think his last name was McBride something like that, like Ron McBride or something, he was like an under of dicks and that was it we was signed. so you know that's how that whole thing went down house of lords did their thing you know and we basically were dead in the water in america but we you know <laughs> it was ticks when we got there because mm. mca such a pathetic fucking label <laughs> when we sofria was out you know we did all the states with former, all the states with deep, deep Purple, you know, the real bands. Yeah. And 20,000 seaters, 30,000 seaters every night, you know, and uh, they we would go, they would send us off to record stores, you know, to, to like supposedly for signings. And they were like two, two weeks behind getting the records into the towns that we were supposed to be, Playing it. So we'd go. We'd get to Charlotte, you know, to uh, play the show that night, and let's say hypothetically we'd be sent out to a store, <laughs> they'd have like two records in the store. <laughs> I mean, that's how pathetic it was. Wow. It was just unbelievable. So it, everybody had a sour taste in their mouth with that whole thing. By the time we got to Japan headlining, you know, the band was coming apart at the seams. You know, because Greg was, you know, he was trying to run the show and he was opening his mouth at the wrong time, at the wrong people, and it got back to Irving, who was the president at the time. And uh, and when Lonely in Love came out, which entered the charts twenty sh- slots higher than a Call to the Heart, it was on the charts for about a week, and then the news got hit Irving, and he just literally like. Lily Tomlin laughing, he just pulled the cord right out of, right out of the, right out of the, you know, the uh, patch, patch bay, yeah. just said, that's it. fuck them, that's it, I've, had, I've heard enough, because he, you know, he was insulted, somebody insulted him, mm. so, that's yeah. how that all went
2: down. I got, but, cup, uh, I got a couple of questions on some of the things you've already sure. brought up there, get a little bit more detail on it. Um. Yeah. How how how? When did you find out that Greg was going to use the songs on the debut House of Lords album? And how did you feel about?
0: It? I, I didn't. I did not know until the record came out. And then somebody, you know, I, you know, we'd done two records. We'd been around. You know, somebody. If you look at that House of Lords record, my last name is misspelled wrong. They left the E off. So it's like the Isley Brothers. Like I was one of the Isley Brothers. Mm. It says David Glenn I S L E Y, and I was like, oh, I just was like, yeah, this has got to be Gene. It can't be. It can't. Greg couldn't stoop that low. You know that that that's a big typo. I mean that that's like a big typo.
2: <laughs> and I think <laughs> so, if, if, if if you can correct me, but I think the House of Lords record was the first one on his label. So, yeah. So you think yeah, that so would have been was, like proofread and one hundred percent accurate and.
0: Oh, yeah, you would think anyway yeah. that he'd have it totally. Like, you know, I mean, all the your fans, the first thing they'd be doing is grabbing that record and seeing what's going on, you know, or what it's going to sound like. And Greg told, and I, this is straight from the horse's mouth, he said, I want you to, to inflect every nuance that you possibly can muster up that Dave did on these original demos. And the original demos. Are on my lost tapes record mm. from Frontiers. You can hear all four or five songs, maybe short of one of them, on my lost tapes, which are the demos. They weren't the final big things, they were the demos for the third Jafria record. And uh, they ended up on the House of Lords record. <laughs> you know, so it's like, this is a lot of. A lot of weird stuff was going on in the background, you know. So, you know, I'm not going to point fingers at anybody, but I, I have an inkling of, of what was going on. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't care. I mean, it's like, you know, I had the very Party situation, and it was, they were almost like literally simultaneous. You know, I mean, the House of Lords might have gotten um, a weak jump on me before I ran into King. You know, yeah. But I knew something was going to happen. I knew I was going to land somewhere. Yeah. And I didn't want to be in that nightmare anymore, anyway. And Greg and I had already made sort of like peace with it. We kind of said, "It hey, proves us." You know, hey, this. You know, we both knew in our heads this label sucks. You know, and it's like, why are we going to bother? Yeah. And now, now this the camel end of it. You know, is having troubles with MCA because of Irving, so. What are they going to do? You know, they need a distributor. They need somebody to distribute a third Jafferino record. Well, they didn't have one. They were ready to go under. I think the only thing that kept them afloat was maybe a couple more Night Ranger records. That was it. And the Night Ranger was gone.
2: Yeah, they were gone, I think, in 88, 89?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly when Dirty White Boy came out.
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it all it all if you look at it in a timeline, it all what I'm telling you, it all fits into a slot. You know. And the coolest thing with, with Dirty White Boys, we were we had just arrived it was late at night in Germany at uh in, in in Berlin. No, in Hamburg, matter of fact. We checked into our hotels, we maybe had a drink or two, and we all went to bed. And then all of a sudden it sounded like World War Three. And it was the night of unification. Oh, wow. And we were on this beautiful town square. The hotel was a Hyatt, And it was on this town square. And the place was going berserk. And we we were scared. People were running out into the hallways. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And then people started yelling unification in German. Unification, unification. The wall, the wall. It's coming out. And we all went, oh, my God. You know, we're, we're sitting in history, you know, and the next day we all were, but on our way to Hard Luck Chucks, we used to call it, you know, Checkpoint Charlie. Mm. We called it Hard Luck Chucks. <laughs> you know, we got there, we got little pieces of the wall and broken pieces of the sticks that came down, and you know, it was it was it was crazy. It was crazy, but unfortunately, we came home to. We had to try to figure out how to become an R and band real quick, <laughs> and we just and we decided not to.
2: Yeah. It
0: was ridiculous.
2: Um, you, you mentioned also, David, that there was other singers that tried out for Dirty White Eye before you. Um, any any names that I might know?
0: You know what? Singers? There's. I'm trying to remember that you know that far back. There was one that I knew of, that I recognized. And he was short, a short fellow and a good singer, you know, but I, I, you know, if I remember his name, uh-huh. I'll, I'll let you know.
1: So at the time I'm mixing this, we still hadn't heard back from David as far as who that guy was. And, you know, he, maybe he forgot that he was going to try to remember who knows. It would have been uh, quite hilarious. If he came back and said, Ronnie James Dio, because of course, obviously when he starts talking about black hair and short, that was the first thing that popped into my head, but uh, yeah, it's kind of weird for the timeline, but if David does reach back out to Richie and uh, drops who that was, I will certainly drop it into the show notes at focusonmetalpod.com.
0: I can't remember his name and I wouldn't want to you know you know not that it would embarrass him at this point in his life assuming he's even alive but uh, I can't remember his name but I remember he was the only one that I looked at and went or even noticed and just out of the corner of my eye I went oh yeah he's, he's pretty good he, mm. he's a good singer he's a good singer you know mm. it was like a it was like a Joe Lynn Turner kind of sort of vibe mm. you know he had the black, black hair, and he, was, and he wasn't he was very tall, and uh, but it wasn't Joe. But, you know, he did his thing, and I just kind said, what do you want to say? I said, no, 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 let, let, let these guys have already been booked. Let them all get done, and then I'll finish. And I'll just do my thing, and then you guys take her to leave it, you know.
1: Because
0: okay. I loved the tracks. The tracks were like, they were right up my alley. I mean, the tracks were, the tracks, put it this way, the tracks that they had laid John Perdell And Dane uh Dwayne Barron. They were producing the demo the demo tracks. Okay. And these things were like they were jumping out of the speakers. And I'm talking about Badlands, I'm talking about what became what became Badlands after I got done with it. And what became uh You Give Me Love, I think it was like three tunes. And then one that didn't go on the record called um It's on my Lost tapes. What the hell is it called? Um, I'll, I'll remember. I'll shoot it to you. It was, but it's, it's, it's. There's like on the, on the Lost tapes records, you can tell that you're free of stuff. You can tell what was the Dirty White Boys stuff because it's all kind of like itemized. There's like four Dirty White Boy songs that just shit on the record. I mean, just 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 crap all over it. And uh, I remember the members. Dwayne and John trying to do these meticulous mixes, and we heard him. Slick and I heard him. You know, and Slick was a lot more yeah in New York. You know, hey, you know, and he, he, he we both listened to it. We said, man, they just sound flat. <laughs> so Dwayne wasn't there one night, and we just looked at John. God bless him, talented guy. Yeah, and we just said, Johnny. Just take the faders and just ram them. Just ram them up. I don't care. Just Where the slots end, that's where the fader should be. Just ram them up. And he literally basically did that. And they just, they're just killer. They just, I mean, if you take one of the Dirty White Boy ones that I just mentioned off the lost tapes and put it up against the record version, the Bow Hill version, You'll just, you'll fall off your chair. you just go, oh my God. Hmm. Oh my God. Bo didn't have a clue what these guys were all about. I mean, not a clue. You know, so, you know, it, it, so it ended up on a bad note as far as we spent Thanksgiving in New York and Woodstock. That was good up in Bearsville, you know. Dylan, the band, all these people, you know, and we're, we're trying to mix this shit in that studio, which was, that was cool in itself. But, um, the end result was, you know, Thompson Barbero, they could only do so much. And it's like basically trying to undo a bandage that had been put on improperly. So the sore underneath it was already kind of getting you know, messed up. So they tried to put whatever kind of band-aids they knew how to put on onto that record. And still a lot of people, you know, dig it and they don't know the difference. But if they take if they if they were to take the Lost Tapes album and then take those few comparisons, they'd be astonished. They'd just go, Wow, somebody missed a boat on this record, boy. Mm. On the real on the real record. You know, yeah. which shouldn't be the real record at all. The real record should have been with freaking Neil. Yeah, should have been with Slicky and Neil playing guitars. Neil, you know, manning the helm, and uh, and us just having a great time. You know, because yeah. Neil's a great guy, and he's a freaking great player, and he's a great producer, all in his all in his own right. You know, so David, Pat and I used to have our hair done by the same guy. <laughs> That's how I met them. It was hilarious, Yeah. you know.
2: So, so D- yeah. David, tell me about the first time you met Bo Hill. Did he did he go to dinner with the band and say, look, this is what sort of record I want, and you were able to discuss no, it with No, them, no, no, no. any of that?
0: No, when we first, I got to try to remember, I think we met up, I think Slick and I and Bo, met up at the place called the glen deli which is up in beverly hills it's a it's a it's a deli it's like a high-end deli and Bo took us to lunch you know and also another wine and cheeser and this is before <laughs> before you know and we had already done the whole dog and not dog and pony but we had already met with neil so we knew what we wanted but you know danny was insistent goldberg that we meet with Bo so we met with Bo, he took us to lunch and he says, you know, he said the same thing same story I need you guys I need you guys worse than you need me I need you guys, you know and he was he was doing that whole spiel, you know he's coming, out, we're not coming off a million double platinum single platinum records, he is so you know, his bullshit of I need you more than you need me was like, that went in one ear and right out the other and we just Sat there, had our free lunch, and uh, looked at each other. And went we both just said, "What do you think?" And I said, well, we'd, we'd, "We'd rather do this thing with Neil. Just look two ways about it. We'd rather do it with Neil because we know what it's going to end up sounding like. It's going to sound like John and Dwayne on you know on steroids. It's going to be huge, you know and uh, Dan and they just basically the record company because of money because of numbers They overruled us and they said no, we're gonna gonna do it with Bo. So we just kind of bit our tongues and went well, let's just You know go and do it with open ears and and it was the most exhausting time You know, it was like day and we're in a wrong studio. We're a studio that Paul, you know, the enterprise in the valley which is where Paula Abdul, God bless her, sweetheart, she had just won seven Grammys, and I meet her at the water cooler, and I go, congratulations from last night. That's great. You know, (laughs) hey, cool. You know, and she's just, you know, she's in the other room. and, And I'm thinking to myself, scratching my head, going, what are we doing in this studio that is just maxed out wall to wall without board gear that none of us give a shit about I mean, I'm not kidding you, Slick. In the, on that record, he used an MXR phase shifter, which you could buy for seventy nine bucks, and I think an overdrive pedal. That's all he wanted. That's all he needed. And Bo insisted on him pushing it, sticking me in this rack and trying to get this sound and trying to, and Slick would just get to the point where he was, you know, going through a pack of Marlboros. He said, "I'm out of here." I'm fucking out of here. I'm leaving. You know, and I go, oh, God, what am I going to do? You know, and I, I'd run. I'd go out. I'd run into the alley, and drag him back in. I'd say, suck, we got to. Let's just try to get through it. He goes, this, this is bullshit. <laughs> this is bullshit. I can't play like this. Nobody's ever asked me to play like this. Bowie's never asked me to play like this. John never asked me to play like this. I could walk in there with a fucking empty beer can and a rubber band. And if, they, and if I said it works, they'd say, okay, cool, play. You know, that's it. D- David, why, try- why,
2: why as a compromise did you not go to the label and say, right, why, why can't we do the album with, with Dwayne Barron and John Pardell then?
0: Because, number one, they, at that point, they had never even heard. I don't believe they had ever even heard. John and Dwayne's demos. Okay. Mm-hmm. They might have, they might two of them, maybe one or two of them might have slipped through the cracks and they might have heard those, you know. And uh, actually, John Collardner heard them. John heard them because John always was trying to scotch tape me to somebody. And it, whether it be at the end of it, like for instance, you know who John is. Yes, I do. What he looks like. Yeah, you know. Guy looks like a, dude looks like a lady, you know. So we were rehearsing a potential dead on arrival second Dirty Whiteboard record for Virgin. And we were rehearsing over at Leeds Studios. Now, right across the little alleyway when you go into the parking lot. There's a couple little studios, tiny ones. So John calls me up, and he says, "Listen, Dave, you talk like this, you know, Dave. I I know you're rehearsing with Dirty Waypoint right now, but this is kind of on the sly. When you have a break, I want you to go across the little alleyway, and Peter, you know, Frampton will be waiting. <laughs> he wants to he wants to meet you because he's heard your voice. He's heard Lazy Crazy, you know, blah blah blah." You know, I have all this stuff, you know. And he says he wants to talk to you. So I said, oh, okay. So I snuck over there, and I went into the little room, and there was Pete sitting there. And what the whole crux of it was is Pete and John, probably John mostly, were trying to conjure up a whole new revamp of Humble Pie. Now, my wife used to go to school with Stevie in England, yeah. you know. And... uh my wife is Olivia Hussey, you know, who played Juliet, you know, and so that was back in the London heyday and all that stuff. And they all went to drama school together. So anyway, so I, we we couldn't have been in there. I couldn't have been in there more than 15, 20 minutes. And we were talking. And he goes, I, you know, I really, I like, I love your voice. I dig it and this and that. Black, I go, shit, man, I saw you guys in 72 with Stevie, you know, at the Long Beach Arena, man. You blew my friggin' head off. I mean, you were amazing. It was, you know, so it was like a complimentary thing. It was nice back and forth. And then there was like this dead silence. I kid you not, it was probably the longest 15 seconds of us just, you know, Pete just kind of leaning on his arm and me just kind of, you know, picking my ear. And uh, we almost both simultaneously said, I think I said it first. I said, Peter, we can't, nobody can do Humble Pie without Pete, without us, Stevie." And he, the, the look on his face was like he, it just it was like the sigh, the biggest sigh of relief. He goes, "I am so glad you said this first. Hmm. And I said, "Well, okay." And we both kind of laughed. And I and then it was like we looked at each other and said, "Well, okay, who, who's going to tell John?" You know. And uh, I said, I laughed and I said, "Well, I guess it's probably going to have to be you." I said because I and it, it never happened, you know. And I, you know, at that time in my career, I would have, I probably would have done it, or at least tried to do it in a heartbeat. You know, because I I loved Humble Pie. Yeah. And I loved Stevie, and I I loved his voice, and to be even compared, to be in that realm of that edgy, you know, raspy shit, you know, it was like, yeah, man, I get, I get this stuff. And Pete knew I got it. You know, that's why had John, you know, send me over there and, uh, look at each other and I said, this is, and this is before, you know, this was before bands were, you know, becoming, you know, tribute bands. This was well before that, but it might've been one of the first ones, you know, if we had gone ahead and done it. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, in retrospect, I'm glad we didn't do it mm-hmm. because I, I wouldn't, you know, I know Kelly very well or not very well, but I know him. we've met several times and he's a great singer and he does a great job of doing lou you know and uh but you know come on he's kept the music alive he's he's kept mick on his feet for years but it, 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 it really is meaningless it's like you know the audiences are older they don't care they just want to hear the songs but there's no substantial new records you know, with with Lou and Mick writing, you know, it, so it all make to me. I've just lost so much interest because it just does. It's meaningless. It, it just it, it it's meaning. It's meaningful to the fans, and the fact that you got to just be on the road all the time to make your to make your mortgage or your rent. Yeah, you know, because you can't make any money with records anymore. Forget mm-hmm. it. Forget it. Yeah. So, you know. It it probably would have been one of the forerunners of they're trying to put back humble pie together and they got a new singer. <laughs> you know. Great. Hmm. You know, who cares? It's like, okay, well let's put Zeppelin together we'll just re- <laughs> we'll just replace plant. Fuck it, who cares? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like you don't you don't do it, man, if you got any kind of integrity. Hmm. You know. So it, it, it's
2: yeah. So, David, um, you already said that Earl wanted to kill Bo. So, tell me about tracking vocals with Bo. Did you want to kill him as well?
0: No, I didn't. You know why? Because he had nothing to say. We did all my vocals. You know, the whole thing was so crazy. We couldn't stay in one studio, one good earthbound, funky studio. So, we had to fly to a place called Granny's House. It's a funny story. Quick, I'll, you'll like it. it. It's in Reno. So Bo and I flew up there to check it out, strictly to do vocals and a few guitar overdubs. The whole band flies up to Granny's after we've got the basic tracks, which blew. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they weren't bad in the sense of the normal ear hearing them, but they were bad to us. They weren't what they what we wanted. But we had to live with them. So anyway, we get to Granny's house, and it's a it's a Cape Cod cottage house. It's been converted downstairs into a full blow studio. Beautiful, and it's got like five bedrooms. And the band just lives there. Okay, so I get I got I've got all my shit done. It's all mapped, written, done. I know what I'm gonna do. It's just being in shape and just get in there and blow my guts out. That's it. So when I got in there. The only thing that I don't care for doing, and I never really did it with with, uh, Dirty Wife, i with Jafria. I basically, was two takes at tops. And most of the time, it would be one take, and it would be a punch-in, maybe one or two punch-ins, on everything I did on both those records. Because I don't like, you know, Bo's a big comper. Well, let's do like, 10 versions, and then we'll comp it and take mm. the best the and the best and and the best love from different tracks. Well, I'm not big on that, so I told him, I said, Oh, let's just cut it down because these a lot of these are screamers, man, and I'm going balls out. So let's cut it down to three, three takes, and then we'll come, and then you and I'll comp. And he goes, Okay, fair enough. So I blow through them, blow through it, blow through it again. And I'd blow through it again unless he'd stop me too and say, fuck, man, this is like Bond Scott. This is crazy, man. That, that was literally what he said. He'd say, it's, it's fucking Bond Scott. And he was way off because it didn't sound at all like Bond Scott. But that's, <laughs> but that's his rock and roll mentality. <laughs> I don't think he'd probably listen to an ACDC record all the way from front to bottom. You know? so, but I, so I had no qualms at all. There was never a lyric change. There was never like, do this, do that. Why don't you go up there? Why don't you go down there? Nothing. just, I just blew through it. Just blew through it.
2: I just want to ask you a, a little bit about a couple of songs on the record, because in my opinion, all the best songs are in, are in the back end. Um For me? you I'm, cut
0: out you cut out there, didn't
2: yeah, you? All, so all the best songs on the record, in my opinion, are at the back end of it. So I'm thinking Dead Cat Alley, Soul of a Loaded of Gun, Badlands. They're, like They're all the best songs and they're all like at the end of side one and all on side two. Um would would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with it. I would agree with it. And that was another that was another managerial choice that the bad the bad reputation put it and I can't remember it without looking at it I can't remember the order and those are the songs the ones you just mentioned those in fact Dead Cat Alley we never even did live we never even did it why I don't know we should have but um Soul of a Loaded Gun I think we did live the only reason I don't no I don't because I've had a Hammond brought in, and I played Hammond on Soul because I said, "Sucky, we need a we need a Hammond on this." And he goes, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, let's let's get a Hammond ordered." I mean, Bo's those like money's no no object. So get him get him to get a fucking Hammond in here, and I'll put a Hammond part on it. You know, and Soul of a Loaded Gun was a, was one of my favorite tunes on the record. Oh yeah, and it, and it was before. If you listen to the cadence of that verse. It was before Def Leppard had sugar on me. I think.
2: No, that was. I mean, I didn't have it. That was eighty-seven. Def Leppard sugar. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Then it might have been. It might have been my my bad. Uh, Just you know, you know, subconsciously just getting that cadence out. But it was. They're they're similar in the verse cadences. But um, so I tip my hat to Joe. So. But yeah, and Badlands went was always a killer. They loved it. And another one that, that, that you didn't mention, that live, people loved it. And in fact, a lot of the magazines, now you can mind you, this was all European magazine stuff at the time, they would say that the band became more real when Dave put on his Telecaster. When he strapped on the on his telly and he played rhythm against Slick, mm. it, it just became more more what's the word? Uh, um um uh, not uh, authentic, let's put it that way. There was, so it became not so much a frontman thing, whereas in Jifre, I was a bona fide just a front man, you know. But um, but when the guitar went on, then all of a sudden it seemed to at least for years, some of them anyway, it it balanced the thing out to where it was like that's what the band's really all about and one good reason was a tune that started off with me and just my guitar, very quietly, and then the the band would come in but we didn't cut it that way on the record on the record it just came right in ding 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 whereas I would be able to milk it live just my guitar me no, and then the band would kick in and the audience loved it and uh hammer to the heart was a was a was a big one
2: yeah i like live. That, too.
0: that was a big one live but it was cut atrociously it was cut terribly but that was after slick and i wrote that after the fact it was kind of a one of the later ones we wrote you know and um one we knew we were stuck with Bo. You know, but that was that one was a big... The audience started that one too. D- Germany was just, you know...
2: Yeah, D- David, <laughs> how, how difficult was it to do press and sell the record knowing that you didn't like the sound of it at all?
0: Well, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, when you're out there and somebody's sticking a mic in front of you and, you know, they're there because they want they find importance in you be you know or they wouldn't be there they find importance in you you you, you know your mindset kind of goes into a different gear and you know you don't you're not going to sit there and just start saying oh really you really done that we thought it was a pile of shit you know you're not thinking yeah. that way you're just you're thinking. I want to please this guy. I want to know this gal, and I, I want them to walk away feeling good about it. You know, and uh, so it, it was, it was, it, the whole European thing was so bizarre. And that's what I was going to get at, allude to earlier. With them, with Jeffrey, who charted and were there on the second record, they sent us to Japan. They never sent us to Europe or anywhere else. Okay? So Dirty White Boy gets to fucking England and and everywhere for that matter. And every place we went, we would go for a walk and, you know, because you wanted to walk around these these mystery streets and stuff, and you'd come across a record store. And we were in that town to play. All the displays in the front of the record stores were both Jafria records. And sometimes behind the Jaffria records were the dirty white boy record. Was the dirty white boy and Slick would look at me and he'd go, You motherfucker. He goes, You telling me you they, you never played here? And I said, Slick has God as my witness. We never they never said us here. And he goes, Well, why the fuck are, is every record store touting the Jaffreya records? And I go, I don't know. I don't know. And every time we do it, you know, we'd try to get back on the bus, you know, there'd be crowds out there, two-thirds of them, which are free offense. And there'd be, you know, I'd be signing jackets, albums, this, that, and the other, and Slick would be going, this is insane. What is going on? What is going on? So he was really, and, you know, I don't think he'd mind me saying this because it's it's his truth. You know, this was the first time Slick went on tour, on a major tour, let's just call it, a semi-major tour, sober. Dead, stone, cold, sober. So he was, there was a part of him that was scared shitless. And he was, you know, he's about as pro as you can get. Hmm. And he's been, I, I, God bless him, he's been sober since 1988. I mean, he won't eat a piece of food that's got boiled off vodka you know, or boiled off, anything like that. I mean, he used to stone cold sober.
2: Yeah.
0: And that's since 88. But that tour was, was his cherry breaker. you know, as far as playing live. I mean, he used to, stories were horror stories. You know, roadies would have to find him in a bathroom, strap his, he'd be throwing up in the sink, and he wouldn't know where he was, and they'd have to strap his guitar on him, and, and, Two guys would have to walk him down the staircase to get him onto the stage. And once he got in front of his two lousy little pedals, he'd just go on autopilot. You know, <laughs> but that's how bad he was. Yeah, That's how bad things were getting for him. You know, he, he OD'd on NyQuil. You know, they had to take him to Roosevelt Ho- Hospital in New York. You know, like in back in 87 or something like that. He was going to die. He says, "If I touch that any any shit anymore, he says, I'm dead. I'm dead." Wow. So, yeah. No, so it's a testament to him.
2: That tour. I, I'm not going to give you long more.
0: Everybody out there, you metalheads, this is Metallica tears from Steelheart. You are listening to Focus on Metal, Rock and Roll.
2: Uh, that tour was a Magnum, wasn't it? In England.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, Magnum was for the most part. Was, we were, I think we we're up. Pretty much
2: of the time with them. Mm. I think you they were they were on okay. the same label on Polydor. Um, yeah, no, it, it was Polydor.
0: You're I, right. It yeah, I don't
2: Goya. know whether you're aware they had an in, they had an interesting uh, time with the label as well on that record because they, that the record they did was Good Night L.A. with Keith Olsen, and the label made them get outside songwriters in to break the American market, and they never actually released the album in the U.S.
0: That well, makes sense. It's, it's typical <laughs> bullshit. It's typical label bullshit. Yeah. You know, um, I remember being in Scotland. I can't remember his name. Most of them are really nice fellows, But the singer...
2: Bob Catley. I can't remember his name. Bob Catley. What's his first name? Bob Catley.
0: Bob, Bob Catley. Yeah. That's right. He and I, I remember, it was the only time throughout everything. He and I got sent to a radio station in Scotland to do a, an interview together. And I don't think he liked me at all. And I can pick up a vibe pretty quick. So I basically just kind of sat next to him, but I basically just made just made the DJ laugh, you know, which I don't think Bob liked at all. I was just joking and having a good time and he was just sitting there very morosely and I didn't get along. We didn't we didn't go out of our way to talk or anything like that. Whereas Lou Graham, Lou, you know, he, he was we. He and I would eat with the crew. That's the kind of guy Lou is. Mm. He and I would we would eat with the crew, and then you know he used us as his barometer as to how the audience was because foreigner. We used to call them after, after about two weeks of hearing hit after hit after hit after hit, and then watching absolutely nothing going on on stage. we used to call them boringer and we did and it wasn't because we didn't like them it was just because they didn't do anything it was just there was no entertainment value other than them being on stage and just playing their songs you know so for an audience one night at a time it was fantastic and Lou knew it so when I was coming off stage soaking wet he would stick his head either out of the dressing room, or out of the crew room, and he'd look at me with those big blue eyes, with big bug eyes. He'd look at me, and he'd either give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, with this big question mark on his on his face. And I just go thumbs up, and he would go yeah. And I, if I go if I went thumbs down, he knew he was going to have to be working hard, and <laughs> you mm. know, and try to get the audience to friggin' budge, you know. So uh, it was a. Uh, it was very interesting, you know, the the and then he took us the, the night before the last gig, he took us all like at eleven o'clock at night, he had his favorite Italian restaurant in Rochester stay open. And he took both bands and everybody, the crib everybody to a big dinner. Nice. And me and Rick Rick Wills got into a you know, their old bass player yeah. got into a got into a bread roll fight, throwing shit all over the <laughs> restaurant. Just had a blast, having a ball and Mick was like Mick didn't like me either. You know, Mick, Mick's a very arrogant, arrogant cat. Bud Prager was married, managing them at the time, and Bud wanted. To, in fact, Bud took me for for a while as a solo. He took me for a while after after the four in between all of that nonsense. You know, he wanted he wanted to manage me as as a solo artist, but he he ended up just being up and you know montauk bay or wherever the montauk he did the montauk and i would never hear from him I and mean, he had some slouch that worked here on the west coast in l.a you know and i'd meet with this guy in his crummy little apartment or uh, office occasionally i don't know anything new from from bud that was when um and virgin was interested in taking me as a solo and uh, that was when bud was involved with me hmm. And that was short-lived, you know. Just, it just the, the guy, the guy who from Virgin broke his broke his leg like in a thousand pieces on a motorcycle accident, and it is and he was out of commission, and Bud and I just kind of like just, just drifted apart. But Bud was really, really, uh, you know, interested at one point, and I think the one point came. And I'll give you this is a funny story too. They played because they didn't move. So people in the back really couldn't see anything. So what they did is they played on a slanted stage. That was, so in other words, people in the back could see the whole band.
2: Hmm. It was
0: like the band was playing sideways, you know, so <laughs> like, like in the air. So me running around all over the place, you know, I would get, I would get, you might as well just throw me in a pool and then put me on a stage. I was, you know, from one end of the stage to the other for 90 minutes, you know, for an hour, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there was one night we were somewhere, I don't know, we were not Philadelphia, we were, it was a big, big arena. And uh, so there was a whole, you know, the, the pit on the wings, you know, where people, you know, VIPs could be and watch the band and all that stuff. I came, and this is what I think I hooked, but I was running towards across the stage from stage r- right to stage left, heading towards that loge up there. And I was running towards them. And I used to play baseball, you know, like serious pro with the, with the Giants. And I went into a slide. Now, this was a tipped stage. <laughs> so So I hit the stage high, and I slid down. But I kept going;
2: <laughs>
0: I couldn't stop because they didn't have—they didn't use sidefills. They all—they flew their monitors out in front of them, up high. They didn't have any side sidefills to stop me, so I'm—I'm I'm sliding and I can't. But there's no brakes, and I keep going. I keep going, and there's Bud, a couple other people, and Martha Quinn, little Martha from MTV. And I flew right off the stage, and thank God there were some road cases down, like two feet down below me. And I landed on those road cases, pronounced to me, my feet hit something, and I landed, and just raised my arms to the to the left-hand loads, you know, like, yeah, I planned that whole thing! You know, and they <laughs> they went nuclear, and Bud just was in tears. Martha was terrified she thought I was going to fly right into her head. You know, she, she was like a little kid, like Little Red Riding Hood, running yeah. away from the wolf, yeah. you know. And Bud, Bud was just, he was, and then he came back and said hello and introduced himself and all that. And he said, that was insane. I said, thank God those road cases were there. I'd been frigging doing the next show in a wheelchair, you know.
2: <laughs> David, did, uh, so, did, did you get a chance to hang out much with the Deep Purple guys?
0: There's an odd bunch, boy. Now that was the original, but the real band. Yeah, Ian Pace, just a sweetheart, just a great freaking human being. He hung out with. Listen, he was just out in and the other and blubber. Blah, blah. Richie, I'm going right to Richie. I don't care because I'm not the only person who'll go after go go for his Road. That guy is the biggest asshole that I've ever strapped on a guitar. Or got on a stage because Goldie was smoking him every night. Goldie was doing shit that Richie had no clue how how to do. And uh, we were in Philadelphia. And 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 and, and just to shorten the, the story, Gillen was basically Richie's at that time. Eighty-five perfect strangers. He was basically Richie's, you know, yes man. Gillen. As great as Gillen is, he was like his yes man. He just basically didn't want to have anything to do with getting in a fight or this or that or anything like that. Glover uh, never said the word to any of us. John was uh, the first night in Wichita. He came backstage after our set, you know, because it was all, it was um free it was um, open seating. There was no seats. It was just a big, you know mosh kit. And, the, and they you know, you gotta remember when we when they signed us on, they signed us on based, based, a charting call of the heart. And that's what we're you know, a journey slash eagles band to open up for them Or probably the other way around, probably an Eagles slash journey band. And we blew the, part of, blew the place apart. And John came downstairs. came in right into the dressing room, knocked politely, opened the door. We said, John, Lord, oh my God. You know, incredible. he's going, man, welcome to the tour. You guys, how fucking fabulous. It was incredible. It was just sad. blah, blah, blah. So that, that night, we all just proceeded to get wrecked. We were so ecstatically happy <laughs> and things like that. I get it about two thirty in the morning in Texas, Odessa, Texas. You know, stunk like oil wells, and uh, it's our manager, one of our managers, and he's saying, "Dave, we got problems." It might have been three in the morning, and I said, "You know, I'm like, well, what what, what? what are you talking about?" I went great. John Lord came down, blah blah blah. He says, "Richie wants to fire you guys today, tonight, tomorrow. I'm like you're not going to show up." and we said you're talking about and he said richie wants you guys off the tour he doesn't want to deal with you guys and i said what the fuck what the fuck for this is my first major tour and i'm going what the fuck for and then it spread through our whole camp and it was like he wants what and then the management said listen you know they got to uh, bruce whatever his name is who was their manager can Payne. Said, you can't- yeah Thing. And I remember what he looked like. I knew his name was Bruce, and Bruce wanted him off, wanted us off too. And they, they basically just said, Listen, you can't fire him. You have to pay him off, you know, if you want to try to fire him. So, what they did, let's say the ticket time for the show was 7.30 or 8 o'clock. If it was an 8 o'clock show, Purple would make us go on at like 20 to 8. They'd give us half, not even half of the house lights they took our side fills away no monitors they took i had three monitors in front of me on the floor they took two of them away they left me one one wedge that was probably two and a half feet wide okay so i couldn't i couldn't hear a damn thing and this went on throughout the whole tour till we got to philadelphia and goldie and i were and the manager, one of our managers were on our way from the hotel to the spectrum. And we got hit by a... We were over a riverbed up high, and we got hit about 90 miles an hour from the rear. Car almost careened off the bridge. And we, Goldie and I were like freaked out, just slipped out. You know, manager totally fucked up. He was riding shotgun. And thank God he had his belt on. We hitchhiked off the turnpike some fella in a VW van pulled us, pulled over on the bridge. Goldie's got his guitar in his case. And the Larry's limping. I'm holding him up. The guy, is, God bless him, he put us in the van. And he says, well, where you got, what happened? Where are you guys headed? Our car is all to- totaled. I got a picture of the car. It's just totaled. We said, we're on our way to the Spectrum. The Spectrum? What are you guys doing going to the Spectrum? We said, Well, we're playing there tonight. We're supposed to be there already. He goes, he goes, Well, I can't I can't go there and get you there. I said, You'll get us there. Don't worry. Just drive. Just drive to the back where the back entrance is. So these people you know, we get there, these the, the, the security's like going, What who the fuck are you? And he says, I got three of these guys in this band. They're, they're supposed to be playing there tonight. So we show our faces, and they go, "Oh my God, we're there, in a on the bridge. They're gonna, they should be dead, you know." <laughs> wow. So we get in, we get into our dressing room. I go through almost a fifth of vodka in fifteen minutes. I'm so shook up. Yeah. Twenty thousand Deep Purple fans out in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. We get out, we start to do our show. Everything is going wrong. Sound is going off here. Goldie's amp is feedbacking, like this, that, and the other. Blah, blah, blah. We get to the last song, which was Trouble Again. And my vocal mic gets cut. I go over to Goldie's vocal mic, which you never use. It's just there for looks. It's been cut. So I grab I grab Kriger's kick drum mic. <laughs> and I'm ye- I'm yelling. I am yelling at 20,000 Deep Purple fans, and I'm prancing up and down the stage, back and forth, back and forth, and I'm yelling, somebody's fucking with us. Somebody's fucking with us. Deep Purple is fucking with us. And I sure as hell, I look back, and Richie's just, after I start that rant, he's walking off the back of the stage. He was up there, Manipulating everything, and our roadie somehow, our monitor guy or our stage guy, our stage mixer, had been pushed aside, and Richie had some guy just totally fucking our bitches. Just totally fucking everything up. Turning mics off, doing this, that, and the other. But he didn't remember to turn the kick drum mic off. And when I was yelling all this shit at the Deep Purple fans, they they went nuts. Like, positive. Like, yeah, fuck those guys. Right? So we go back to the dressing room. And I am livid. I am absolutely come my eyes are popping out of my head and i'm back there i'm so fucking mad and i said if brooksy brooksy was their big fucking security bouncer big curly haired blonde guy he's twice my size you know he comes storming in your dressing room and i shot out of my chair And I ran up. I ran at him, and I said, "You motherfucker! You get your fucking out! You get the fuck out of here, or I will take you apart! I will take you up!" And he, his eyes got all glazed. And I mean, I must have just looked like a rabid fucking cat. It just, you know, it just jumped at him, you know, or a crazy friggin' monkey, Hmm. you know. And he just bailed. That was it. So the next night was our last night in Pittsburgh. I'll never forget Greg. Our last night in Pittsburgh, band's going to fly back in two days. Greg and I have to fly back right after the gig to do an MTV thing the next day in LA. Ben's going to stay, sleep the night, fly in the next. So Greg takes, he takes, he takes a, and they each had their own room in a dressing room. He takes two sticks of chapstick, and he played, he he. And Purple's on stage now. And we're, we're, he and I are getting ready to leave. And he takes two chapstick. And he opens Gillen's dressing room door. And I think he left a little note like, you know, love Jafria. And he put two tubes of chapstick on this table for Ian to look at. Like in other words, you can kiss that motherfucking guy's ass as long as you want. He's still a fucking asshole, and you're a fucking asshole, you know. And then we left. Never heard from them again, <laughs> ever again. It was unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. Pearl Goldie's like twenty years old, you know, and he can't control his, his guitars, going like just going bonkers, you know. And, oh, and that's the, the topper. As, as Greg and I are walking down the hall, we see Goldie's, uh, Richie's dressing room. God bless Goldie at the, at the time. He's just, a you know, his, his idol was Richie.
2: Yeah, he's told me he's that. Got
0: his, he's got his back to us in the hallway. The door is like three quarters open. And he's got his arms around Richie. Richie's got the guitar on. And I went, what the fuck were you doing? He goes, well, I was teaching Richie my how I do my hammer ons. <laughs> I go, are you joking me? He goes, no. He innocently looked at me and says, No, he just wanted to know how I did certain things. And I said, and you showed him? He said, Well, you know, you know, the guy's my idol. And I'm going after what he did to us last night in Philly. Yeah. I said, and he just went. Well, I, I don't know. I didn't. I really didn't know. You know. And I. I just said, okay, never mind. <laughs> and I just left. was <laughs> a true story. Wow. was a true story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was just like like it unsolvable. It does That doesn't happen. You know. So that that was insane. And uh, you know. Oh, and they shortened our set down from what, just under an hour. To twenty-five minutes. <laughs> so if anybody came in, they were already twenty minutes late. So they caught like Call to the Heart and Trouble Again. What
2: a dick! I mean, they
0: really—that
2: was oh a my real God. dick move.
0: It, it's the—it's the. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories about him with Rainbow and putting shaving cream in people's shoes and turning the heat up, you know, and all that kind of crap. You yeah. know, I've heard it from Joe. I've heard it from all those guys. But there was nothing. Nothing, like what went on with with us. I mean, I swear to God, you know, it was unbelievable, and I'll never forget that when we first got to Odessa, it was a big like like set almost like a hockey rink because it was like there was no chairs because it was uh you know, so Richie got there. I mean, the, the purple guys got there to check out the venue. Greg and I were there. I think a couple of us were, and we we're. Greg and I were in the far corner Like the other end of the arena Now Richie's a a, Apparently at that time He was a fairly Really good soccer player Yeah he loves it Yeah and he And he he lets people know about it too (laughs) Uh, And I was watching him You know He had like a black trench coat on You know and his hat And and he teed off on a soccer ball right towards us and it was gonna and Greg wasn't paying attention at all and it was gonna clip it would have clipped Greg in the head it was a great shot all the way across his rink and, he, and it was gonna hit him in the head and I I deflected the ball off you know off to the side and Greg went what the fuck was that I said I said Richie I said he teed off on a soccer ball and was gonna hit you in the head and he goes just fucking asshole! That fucking <laughs> asshole! I said, "Well, you know him better than I do. I've never met him, you know." And uh, that's how that's that was the tone. That's how the tone was with that soccer ball. And then when we blew the place apart, and he realized that he had hired a rock and roll band, it was like he no, these guys aren't staying. They're gone. Get girls. Called girls school or whatever they're called, you know, get 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 them on. Because they ended up taking over for us. Because we jumped onto the foreign tour. You know, after the Purple Tour, we jumped right onto right onto the foreigner tour. And um, and that was like just going to heaven. Other other than having to deal with Nick and his, you know, his just his just, just arrogant, you know, nose in the air like I'm Paul McCartney. You know, and it was like, oh, God, this, this guy's, you know, he writes some great songs. I mean, they're good, you know, commercial radio songs. Dude, say hello to somebody once in a while. Don't just nod your head like, like you're, you know, you're the wonderful world of Oz. You know, it was horrible. And I've ran into Lou a couple of times over the years, you know, and it was oh, it's always been, you know, always been just a laugh and oh my god you remember that no oh shit you know i remember them leaving he and mick were, we had a few days off we were going to play a couple little clubs and they had three days off and they went lou and uh, and mick flew to go out and see the firm and i went oh you're gonna go out and see the firm you're gonna go out and see rogers and Lou is like all lit up, and he's going, "Yeah, man, I'm going to see the man. I'm going to see the fucking man." You know, and I swear to God, this I was talking like a kid. He's going, "I'm going to see the man." So a couple of days later, they, you know, they come back for the next, you know, they return, and I go, I go right to Lou, and I go, "So how was he? How was he? You know, how was he?" And he he just smiled. He just went, "The shit, man." the shit <laughs> hmm. it was so cool it was just a great great moment and then I've run into a couple of times studios you know around here you know in LA hmm. and he, it's always been real you know and I felt so bad man, when I found out about his you know the surgery and all that shit but he made he got through it you know yeah and, and just to just to make sure you don't misinterpret anything. I tip my hat to Kelly and that whole thing and keeping him going because I know Kelly, you know, and he's he's a great singer. He
2: and he's had a great
0: career. He, he turned it into a great career for, him, for himself, you know, and uh, you know, so as far as Foreigner, no qualms other than just Nick not being a very likable fella. Mm. But now, you know, it's like all of us, you know, your mortality starts to set in and it's like, uh, you know, who have I been an asshole to over the years? That starts coming to the forefront of your head. You know, (laughs) thankfully for me, I don't have anybody coming to the forefront of my head. I've never really messed with anybody. I've always been very calm and cool and, you know, respectful. And if somebody got, got me pissed, I'd let him know it, you know. But oh. but I'd have to really be pushed, like on that purple thing in Philadelphia. <laughs> I was pushed to the limit.
2: Well, the, the, well, David, you the know? way to look at that is it, after that, it can only get better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in my age. <laughs> so, fi- final question. Yeah, yeah, Final question the big for hit me. The geriatric ward. Yep, final what? question for me, and I'm sure I already know the answer to this. Uh, When is the last time you listened to the Dirty White Boy in full?
0: Well, you know what? And I'll try to, uh, there's a company, you know, there's all these stupid companies that show up. There's a company called Bad, oddly enough, Bad Reputation Records out of France. Okay, I think it was them or somebody else. Anyway, somebody did a whole whole re-release of the Dirty White Boy album Mm -hmm. over in Europe. The whole thing, they sent me like, Two boxes of them, you know, and I'm thinking, well, this is wonderful. You know, I'm not gonna see a penny out of this shit. Not that I care, but you know, but you know, it's like, hey, could you sign one and send it back to me? And I was like, hey, listen, France, or wherever the hell you are, you want to pay the postage? I'm not paying it. You know, <laughs> Give me a break. You're gonna be keeping all the money, yeah. you know, Christ, <laughs> you know. So I never sent that guy anything, you know, but, um, uh, what did you ask me?
2: Um, when is the last time you listened to the whole record?
0: Oh, oh, oh the whole thing in together uh, a long time ago. But in my studio, I have, I have, um, you know, I have, like I said, that I have some of the demos. I have some of the, the uh some of the Bowhill first mixes, which are interesting in themselves because I did all the string parts, and both taunts himself as, as being a keyboard player, that he was a keyboard player. And I said, well, Bob why don't you play keyboards on this stuff? And he go, Oh no, 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 no. You play keys. And I said, Yeah, you yeah, know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a hacker. I can I can get through it. I, everything I've ever done on my solo shit, everything. I've done all the keys. He's just you know, you just play keys. So there's some interesting stuff on there only because he favored the keyboard stuff. So I would listen to it and go, "That's kind of interesting," you know. But as a whole, the actual record, I've never sat down and listened to it for quite some time. You know, you know. Again, a song here, a song there. I think I've gravitated to like Soul, mm. listen to that, and gravitated to, "You Give Me Love." And there's like. Two titles on that one, "You gave Me eleven The ballad, um, that one, and um, "Badlands." Because I have, I have the two, you know, comparison ones. I have the John mixes of those of that one, and I have the uh, the John mix of uh, of Badlands. Which just, I mean, they just they incriminate the record <laughs> it's so, so we didn't really know what we sounded like really until we got out live and yeah. the roadies were recording us backstage on a cassette machine and we were going who, who the fuck is that <laughs> and Kenny's going it's us dude it's us and we're going no there's no way he goes yeah yes." Steve was one of our roadies he was recording <laughs> those shows and I'm like going oh my god so Kenny's got like you know he's got two albums worth of live Dirty White Boy, but it's you know it's gone. He's he's
2: yeah. he's passed passed yeah. away. You know? So so David, hey, so, it, it's been a pleasure talking to you for giving me all this time. Um,
0: I'm sorry to talk your ear off. No
2: no, I, that, that's fine with me. I, I like to I like to hear all the stories, and you you told a lot of really good ones. Um, <laughs> do you do you have um? Do you have a website or anything there that you wanna that you wanna give out that people can get in touch with you or maybe buy stuff?
0: No, you know I haven't, I've, I've got a. I I've mean, if you go to DavidGlenIsa.com, I think my picture still comes up, you know. And uh, but I, I don't I don't service it at all. I don't at this point, you know. I can post it on my Facebook like, hey, I'm putting and I'm going to. I've got I've got probably about fifteen tunes that have nothing. To do other than two of them, nothing to do with rock and roll, or Jafria sound, or Dirty White Whiteboy sound. They're just very personal songs to me that I want. I want to get them out. I want to just purge myself of them. You know what I mean? I don't care if ten people pick them up. I just want them. I want to know I got rid of them. I got them out of uh, off of my out of my Pro Tools and you know and into somebody's hands if they want them. And and there's a few really really uh, Really cool sweet tunes on them. And I say sweet in a very, you know, they're meaningful. They're very meaningful to me. And I don't, so they'll come out. They'll come out eventually,
1: you know, nice.
0: in what format, I have no idea. Nice. It was great talking to you. David, yeah,
2: it's been a pleasure. Listen, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, man. And just go ahead and turn, like, in everything I've said, just change it. Okay, change everything. I will. So it'll really piss me off, <laughs> and i just have another thing to aggravate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, David. All well, thanks for talking to me. If you
0: need a nice picture of me in a tutu, I'll <laughs> send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> All Dave, right. Have a good DGE now. <laughs>
2: mm, yeah, a,
0: D, yeah. Present have, day.
2: Okay. All right, David. Have a good rest of the night. Take care,
1: pal. All right. Bye. All right. Well, this is usually the part of the show where I tell you to uh, go to all of the guest artists' social media sites and all that good stuff. But as you just heard, David doesn't really do any of that. So I really can't do that. What I would say is that uh, just keep half an eyeball on his Facebook stuff. See when he uh, decides to post any of those songs he was talking about. And uh, maybe there'll be something in there that you like. He certainly seems to be fond of them. But uh, thanks to David for taking a crap load of time. You know, you guys only heard, you know, about 90 minutes worth of Richie's chat with David. But in truth, the actual talk went probably about two hours. It might even been a little bit more than that. So hopefully you enjoyed everything you heard on this episode. Thank you once again for listening. And as I said way back at the beginning. Some of you for continuing to listen for well over a decade now. It's kind of bizarre when I look back and think about that. But uh, yeah, you know, we started back before people even really understood what the fuck a podcast was. And here we are still doing it. Maybe not syndicated anymore because we pulled back from all of those deals and maybe not weekly. And that's just because, uh, well, Things get in the way and uh, you get some burnout and all that good stuff. You want to keep enjoying what you're doing and making sure that uh, people are enjoying what you're doing as well. And speaking of enjoying, just want to toss this one out as well Is over the last week or so, I have really been enjoying the shit out of Wolfgang Van Halen's two releases, both Mammoth and and, uh, Mammoth 2. Great stuff. I think I prefer the first one a little bit more has a little bit more rock value to it, even though the second one has got some really killer, killer solos. And there's a few songs on there that even remind me a little bit of uh, Alter Bridge. But uh, they are great releases. So if you haven't given Mammoth a chance, definitely would say to do that. And I am certainly looking forward to uh, talking with Wolfgang, potentially coming up in November, and uh, checking him out live in Boston. But again, if you haven't listened to those yet, I, I recommend that. Again, I kind of swing towards the first one more than the second one, but they are actually both pretty damn good releases. Lots of good musicianship on there on display. And also, while we're talking about new music, let's talk about a little bit of new old music. Another one you might want to go check out, pick up, is the new release from Whitesnake. It's a reissue of the Purple Album album. And it does have our buddy Joel Hoekstra laying down some mean-ass guitar on there. So if you want to revisit that album, go check that out. Make sure you do it early enough that you can get yourself one of the gold editions. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie... Myself and everybody else here at Focus on Metal. Have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next time, remember: Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. <sighs>